Section fourteen of Montcalm and Wolfe by Francis Parkman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six, part one, seventeen fifty four to seventeen fifty five. The signal of battle. The defeat of Washington was a heavy blow to the governor, and he angrily described it to the delay of the expected reinforcements. The king's companies from New York had reached Alexandria and crawled towards the scene of action with thin ranks, bad discipline, thirty women and children, no tents, no blankets, no knapsacks, and for munitions, one barrel of spoiled gunpowder. The case was still worse with the regiment from North Carolina. It was commanded by Colonel Innes, a countryman and friend of Dinwiddie, who wrote to him, Dear James, I now wish that we had none from your colony but yourself, for I foresee nothing but confusion among them. The men were, in fact, utterly unmanageable. They had been promised three shillings a day, while the Virginians had only eight pence and when they heard on the march that their pay was to be reduced, they mutinied, disbanded, and went home. You may easily guess, says Dinwiddie to a London correspondent, the great fatigue and trouble I have had, which is more than I ever went through in my life. He rested his hopes on the session of his assembly, which was to take place in August, for he thought that the late disaster would move them to give him money for defending the colony. These meetings of the Burgesses were the great social as well as political event of the Old Dominion, and gave a gathering signal to the Virginian gentry scattered far and wide on their lonely plantations. The capital of the province was Williamsburg, a village of about a thousand inhabitants, traversed by a straight and very wide street, and adorned with various public buildings, conspicuous among which was William and Mary College, a respectable structure unjustly likened by Jefferson to a brick kiln with a roof. The capital, at the other end of the town, had been burned some years before, and had just risen from its ashes. Not far distant was the so-called governor's palace, where Dinwiddie, with his wife and two daughters, exercised such official hospitality as his moderate salary and Scottish thrift would permit. In these seasons of festivity the dull and quiet village was transfigured. The broad, sandy street, scorching under a southern sun, was thronged with coaches and chariots brought over from London at heavy cost in tobacco, though soon to be bedimmed by Virginia roads and negro care, racing and hard-drinking planters, clergymen of the establishment, not much more ascetic than their boon companions of the laity, ladies with manners a little rusted by long seclusion, 
black coachmen and footmen, proud of their masters and their liveries, young cavaliers, booted and spurred, sitting their thoroughbreds with the careless grace of men, whose home was the saddle. It was a proud little provincial society, which might seem absurd in its lofty self-appreciation, had it not soon proved itself so prolific in ability and worth. The Burgesses met, and Dinwiddie made them an opening speech, inveighing against the aggressions of the French, their contempt of treaties, and ambitious views for universal monarchy. And he concluded, I could expatiate very largely on these affairs, but my heart burns with resentment at their insolence. I think there is no room for many arguments to induce you to raise a considerable supply to enable me to defeat the designs of these troublesome people and enemies of mankind. The burgesses, in their turn, expressed the highest and most becoming resentment and promptly voted twenty thousand pounds but on the third reading of the bill they added to it a rider which touched the old question of the pistole fee and which in the view of the governor was both unconstitutional and offensive he remonstrated in vain the stubborn republicans would not yield nor would he and again he prorogued them this unexpected defeat depressed him greatly. A governor, he wrote, is really to be pitied in the discharge of his duty to his king and country in having to do with such obstinate, self-conceited people. I cannot satisfy the Burgesses unless I prostitute the rules of government. I have gone through monstrous fatigues. Such wrong-headed people I thank God I never had to do with before. A few weeks later he was comforted, for having again called the Burgesses, they gave him the money, without trying this time to humiliate him. In straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel, aristocratic Virginia was far outdone by democratic Pennsylvania. Hamilton, her governor, had laid before the assembly a circular letter from the Earl of Holderness, directing him, in common with other governors, to call on his province for means to repel any invasion which might be made within the undoubted limits of His Majesty's dominion. The assembly of Pennsylvania was curiously unlike that of Virginia, as half and more often than half of its members were Quaker tradesmen in sober raiment and broad-brimmed hats, while of the rest the greater part were Germans, who cared little whether they lived under English rule or French, provided that they were left in peace upon their farms. The House replied to the Governor's call, It would be highly presumptuous in us to pretend to judge of the undoubted limits of his majesty's dominions and they added the assemblies of this province are generally composed of a majority who are constitutionally principled against war and represent a well-meaning 
peaceable people. Then they adjourned, telling the governor that, as those our limits have not been clearly ascertained to our satisfaction, we fear the precipitate call upon us, as the province invaded cannot answer any good purpose at this time. In the next month they met again, and again Hamilton asked for means to defend the country. The question was put, should the assembly give money for the king's use? And the vote was feebly affirmative. Should the sum be twenty thousand pounds? The vote was overwhelmingly in the negative. Fifteen thousand, ten thousand, and five thousand were successively proposed, and the answer was always no. The house would give nothing but five hundred pounds for a present to the Indians, after which they adjourned to the sixth of the month called May. At their next meeting they voted to give the governor ten thousand pounds, but under conditions which made them for some time independent of his veto, and which, in other respects, were contrary to his instructions from the king, as well as from the proprietaries of the province to whom he had given bonds to secure his obedience. He therefore rejected the bill, and they adjourned. In August they passed a similar vote with the same result. At their October meeting they evaded his call for supplies. In December they voted twenty thousand pounds, hampered with conditions which were sure to be refused. Since Morris, the new governor, who had lately succeeded Hamilton, was under the same restrictions as his predecessor. They told him, however, that in the present case they felt themselves bound by no act of Parliament, and added, We hope the governor, notwithstanding any penal bond he may have entered into, will, on reflection, think himself at liberty, and find it consistent with his safety and honour to give his assent to this bill. Morris, who had taken the highest legal advice on the subject in England, declined to promise himself, saying, Consider, gentlemen, in what light you will appear to his majesty, while, instead of contributing towards your own defence, you are entering into an ill-timed controversy concerning the validity of royal instructions, which may be delayed to a more convenient time, without the least injury to the rights of the people. They would not yield, and told him that they had rather the French should conquer them than give up their privileges. Truly, remarks Dinwiddie, I think they have given their senses a long holiday. New York was not much behind her sisters in contentious stubbornness. In answer to the governor's appeal, the assembly replied, It appears that the French have built a fort at a place called French Creek, at a considerable distance from the river Ohio, which may, but does not by any evidence or information, appear to us to be an invasion of any of His Majesty's colonies. So blind were they as yet to manifest destiny. 
Afterwards, however, on learning the defeat of Washington, they gave five thousand pounds to aid Virginia. Maryland, after long delay, gave six thousand. New Jersey felt herself safe behind the other colonies, and would give nothing. New England, on the other hand, and especially Massachusetts, had suffered so much from French war parties that they were always ready to fight. Shirley, the governor of Massachusetts, had returned from his bootless errand to settle the boundary question at Paris. His leanings were strongly monarchical, yet he believed in the New Englanders, and was more or less in sympathy with them. Both he and they were strenuous against the French, and they had mutually helped each other to reap laurels in the last war. Shirley was cautious of giving umbrage to his assembly, and rarely quarrelled with it, except when the amount of his salary was in question. He was not averse to a war with France, for though bred a lawyer, and now past middle life, he flattered himself with hopes of a high military command. On the present occasion, making use of a rumor that the French were seizing the carrying place between the Chaudière and the Kennebec, he drew from the assembly a large grant of money and induced them to call upon him to march in person to the scene of danger. He now accordingly repaired to Falmouth, now Portland, and, though the rumor proved false, sent eight hundred men under Captain John Winslow to build two forts on the Kennebec as a measure of precaution. While to these northern provinces Canada was an old and pestilent enemy, those towards the south scarcely knew her by name, and the idea of French aggression on their borders was so novel and strange that they admitted it with difficulty. Mind and heart were engrossed in strife with their governors, the universal struggle for virtual self-rule. But the war was often waged with a passionate stupidity. The colonist was not then an American. He was simply a provincial and a narrow one. The time was yet distant when these dissevered and jealous communities should weld themselves into one broad nationality capable at need of the mightiest efforts to purge itself of disaffection and vindicate its commanding unity in the interest of that practical independence which they had so much at heart two conditions were essential to the colonists the one was a field for expansion and the other was mutual help their first necessity was to rid themselves of the French, who by shutting them between the Alleghanies and the sea would cramp them into perpetual littleness. With France on their backs, growing while they had no room to grow, they must remain in helpless wardship, dependent on England, whose aid they would always need. But with the West open before them, their future was their own. King and Parliament would respect perforce the will of a people spread from the ocean to the Mississippi, 
and united in action as in aims but in the middle of the last century the vision of the ordinary colonist rarely reached so far the immediate victory under a governor however slight the point at issue was more precious in his eyes than the remote though decisive advantage which he saw but dimly the governors representing the central power saw the situation from the national point of view several of them notably dinwiddie and shirley were filled with wrath at the proceedings of the french and the former was exasperated beyond measure at the supineness of the provinces he had spared no effort to rouse them and had failed his instincts were on the side of authority but under the circumstances it is hardly to be imputed to him as a very deep offence against human liberty that he advised the compelling of the colonies to raise men and money for their own defence and proposed in view of their intolerable obstinacy and disobedience to his majesty's command that parliament should tax them half a crown a head the approaching war offered to the party of authority temptations from which the colonies might have saved it by opening their purse-strings without waiting to be told the home government on its part was but half-hearted in the wish that they should unite in opposition to the common enemy it was very willing that the several provinces should give money and men but not that they should acquire military habits and a dangerous capacity of acting together there was one kind of union however so obviously necessary and at the same time so little to be dreaded that the british cabinet instructed by the governors not only assented to it but urged it this was joint action in making treaties with the indians the practice of separate treaties made by each province in its own interest had bred endless disorders the adhesion of all the tribes had been so shaken and the efforts of the french to alienate them were so vigorous and effective that not a moment was to be lost jonquere had gained over most of the senecas piquet was drawing the onondagas more and more to his mission and the dutch of albany were alienating their best friends the mohawks by encroaching on their lands their chief hendrick came to new york with the deputation of the tribe to complain of their wrongs and finding no redress went off in anger declaring that the covenant chain was broken the authorities in alarm called william johnson to their aid he succeeded in soothing the exasperated chief and then proceeded to the confederate council at onondaga where he found the assembled sachems full of anxieties and doubts we don't know what you christians english and french intend said one of their orators we are so hemmed in by you both that we have hardly a hunting-place left 
In a little while, if we find a bear in a tree, there will immediately appear an owner of the land to claim the property and hinder us from killing it, by which we live. We are so perplexed between you that we hardly know what to say or think. No man had such power over the five nations as Johnson. His dealings with them were at once honest, downright, and sympathetic. They loved and trusted him as much as they detested the Indian commissioners at Albany, whom the province of New York had charged with their affairs, and who, being traders, grossly abused their office. It was to remedy this perilous state of things that the lords of trade and plantations directed the several governors to urge on their assemblies the sending of commissioners to make a joint treaty with the wavering tribes. Seven of the provinces, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and the four New England colonies, acceded to the plan, and sent to Albany the appointed place of the meeting, a body of men who for character and ability had never had an equal on the continent, but whose powers from their respective assemblies were so cautiously limited as to preclude decisive action. They met in the courthouse of the little frontier city. A large chain-belt of wampum was provided, on which the king was symbolically represented, holding in his embrace the colonies the five nations, and all their allied tribes. This was presented to the assembled warriors with a speech in which the misdeeds of the French were not forgotten. The chief, Hendrick, made a much better speech in reply. We do now solemnly renew and brighten the covenant chain. We shall take the chain belt to Onondaga, where our council fire always burns, and keep it so safe that neither thunder nor lightning shall break it. The commissioners had blamed them for allowing so many of their people to be drawn away to Piquet's mission. It is true, said the orator, that we live disunited. We have tried to bring back our brethren, but in vain, for the governor of Canada is like a wicked, deluding spirit. You ask why we are so dispersed. The reason is that you have neglected us for these three years past. Here he took a stick and threw it behind him. You have thus thrown us behind your back, whereas the French are a subtle and vigilant people, always using their utmost endeavors to seduce and bring us over to them. He then told them that it was not the French alone who invaded the country of the Indians. The governor of Virginia and the governor of Canada are quarreling about lands which belong to us, and their quarrel may end in our destruction. And he closed with a burst of sarcasm, we could have taken Crown Point in the last war, but you prevented us. Instead, you burned your own fort at Saratoga and ran away from it, which was a shame and a scandal to you.
look about your country and see you have no fortifications no not even in this city it is but a step from canada hither and the french may come and turn you out of doors you desire us to speak from the bottom of our hearts and we shall do it look at the french they are men they are fortifying everywhere but you are all like women bare and open without fortifications end of section fourteen